You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, this is Ariel, and we're going to get to the show in a few seconds. But first, I want to talk to you about State Farm Renters Insurance. Why would you need renters insurance? Well, because it protects the stuff that landlords don't, like your furniture that maybe might get drenched because of a broken pipe. Or maybe your stuff might get stolen, you know, your new laptop. You want to protect that. And for pennies a day, you can make sure it's protected with State Farm Renters Insurance. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. Here's the show. Can you describe what it looks like? Sure. Uh, Yeah, it's black and it's like a thick plastic. It's about the size of a pack of cigarettes. On the top of it, there's a button. And then there's three lights. One light, it's a green light that blinks when they're locating you and they can find you. Then there's a red light that will blink and and it will vibrate. And that will tell you, hey, we're trying to locate you and we cannot find you. Sarah Faye Hanna is a 34-year-old stay-at-home mom. She lives in Pipe Creek, Texas. Last year, she was convicted of drug possession. She's now in year two of a three-year probation sentence. As part of that probation, she has to wear an ankle monitor on her right leg. It's there to track her location. And that ankle monitor, like a lot of other electronics, needs to be charged every night. It takes about two hours. And then the charger is like a pretty thick um, magnetic piece that clicks on to it. And that piece is plugged into the wall. So it's got a pretty long cord. And so I have to just sit next to a wall. (laughs) So two hours every night you are tethered to a wall. Yes, right. Um, Just to to be clear, you're a mom, right? Yes. What does it mean for you that you have to be tethered to a wall for two hours while you're, you're sort of having to deal with a newborn? My husband, I wait until he gets home from work, and then I, I start charging it, and he takes care of the baby. And if I'm, like, sitting back, you know, letting it charge, and the baby wants me or needs me to be fed, then he'll bring the baby to me. Mm. And he'll just kind of do the back and forth with it. So, I mean, if he wasn't here, I don't even really know what I would do. And on the other side of it, my husband works, I don't, and he pays $300 a month for this ankle monitor, and it's not that he complains, but that makes me feel like, well, I'm not even able to afford, if, if I didn't have him, I would be in jail. I'm Ariel Dermross, and this is Reset. On today's episode, we're looking at electronic GPS monitoring within the criminal justice system, a practice that, while still limited, is becoming more prevalent. Just to give you an idea, In 2005, around 53,000 people were supervised with monitors, according to the Pew Charitable Trusts. By 2015, that number had reached more than 125,000 people. Depending on how you look at those numbers, that might seem like a good thing. Some people see electronic monitors as a good alternative to incarceration, because it lets people pay their debt to society while still caring and providing for their families. 
But given their prevalence, I wanted to know more about the tech underpinning these devices and whether they work. Now, this conversation can go in a bunch of different directions, including whether or not these monitors are actually an extension of the mass incarceration problem that we're seeing today in the U.S. And that's a huge and important subject. But there's this whole other layer to this conversation that has to do with the technology itself, which, as it turns out, doesn't work all that well. And that alone has a huge impact on people's lives. So we've already heard that Sarah Fehanna has to charge the ankle monitor every night, and that's a pain. But it's not nearly as stressful as when the monitor loses its signal. Like if we're having dinner at my husband's family's house, it will go off because it can't locate me, and they have a big piece of land. So I have to literally walk across this field of land until it vibrates again, telling me, okay, yes, now we located you. And how do you explain that? Because I don't want everybody in the world knowing that I'm wearing an ankle monitor. You know what I mean? So I just try to pretend like I'm on my phone. <laughs> but that that's frustrating about it. The presence of this piece of technology on Sarah's ankle also has a large impact on how she goes about her life. Like, you know, taking my child to like his doctor's appointments and this and that. It's like, it's emotionally difficult because I... I don't want people, I don't, I, I definitely don't want them to call CPS, anybody to call Child Protective Services on me. I don't want people to look at me and my son and feel like my son's being abused or not being taken care of or like I'm, mm-hmm. you know, just a junkie. You know what I mean? And when I'm out at the grocery store, people will stop me and ask me, like, what's on your leg? <laughs> you know, and I don't, I don't really know what to say. I just, I, I hate it. Like, I just, it, it. It embarrasses me, you know, or makes me feel ashamed of myself. Yeah. We we want to teach our children to do good, you know, and I don't want him to know about my past. And uh, so I guess I'm fearful um, and I just try to keep it covered up as much as I can and hope that nobody sees it. What's the purpose of the ankle monitor? Is it to make sure that you're going certain places at certain times or or is it something different? Um, They didn't really explain it to me. To, they just basically said that it's a GPS monitor and that they know my location at all times in case I decided to run or flee and not go to rehab. The way that it was presented to me was like, hey, you're lucky that you even get to wear this ankle monitor. Otherwise, you would be in prison and you would have your baby in prison. Okay, so this is seen as a like good thing because you have more freedom and, and you're not currently in jail. Correct. Right, right. Do you feel like that's a, a good alternative? Um, I, I feel like it's a little bit extreme. <laughs> I feel like they, they don't have justification to do this. I mean, I've gone to court. I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a lot of hassle and it's super expensive. You know, it's an invasion of my privacy. There are a lot of reasons why a person might be wearing a monitor. Sarah is wearing the monitor while she's on probation. But people who are on parole also have to wear ankle monitors sometimes, after they've served their sentence. The U.S. federal government also uses these devices to monitor undocumented folks. Sometimes, people who have to wear them don't even have a conviction. Instead, they're wearing them while waiting for their trial. 
I'll often hear, but isn't electronic monitoring better than jail? But what I'll say is that's the wrong question, right? And so my really facetious example is I'll say, well, giving people ponies is also better than being in jail, but we don't do that because it's just a useless alternative to jail. Shuba Bala is the director of technology at the Center for Court Innovation. In 2015, Shuba studied the use of electronic monitoring within the criminal justice system in New York City. The district attorney's office of New York County was running a pilot program to test the use of ankle monitors on young people waiting for trial. People who might otherwise have had to spend time in New York City's most infamous jail, Rikers Island. One important thing to know here is that the type of ankle monitor used in the program works by connecting to the wearer's phone via Bluetooth. We had uh, one kid, I think, actually got kicked out of class because their phone kept going off and they couldn't figure out why it was going off. And the teacher was like, this is disruptive. Mm -hmm. In New York, I don't know about other places, but kids aren't supposed to have phones in class at all. So what it meant is that uh, we already were violating the kids' right to privacy around these charges because we had to tell the teachers that, hey, you know, these kids need to be able to keep their phones in class. And then you think of what are all the other kids in class thinking. Right. Because this one kid gets to keep their phone in class, but none of the other kids do. And now it's beeping and disrupting classes. Exactly. And this kid, I say kid, but really it's young adult. Yes, young adult. presumably is being monitored. In order to keep that young adult in class is now being kicked out because of this surveillance system. Right. So there is a lot of nuance that doesn't really get thought of. Um, and basically it for us, it rendered the technology ineffective because we had to make so many exceptions. I mean, this was one example, but there were so many times where we had to say, okay, I guess we'll like turn off any alerts during these hours. Well, then, you know, why so bother having the point? Yeah, why bother having the monitor? Um, and so what we ended up doing was doing exactly what we did prior to electronic monitoring, which is having a relationship with the principals of the schools getting the attendance once a week. So we ended up doing exactly what <laughs> so everybody the most, did. Right, yeah. The most old school way of checking in is just actually just saying, hey, principal, is this, is this teen in class? Right, exactly. So the same technology that was intended to make sure this student was in class was actually the reason he got kicked out. And overall, the researchers found that there were a number of technical issues with electronic monitoring. It only tracks people when it's on or near the person, and it has batteries, and there's GPS signal. So that's issue number one. It is, it's not a magic bullet that tracks where somebody is 24-7 constantly, no matter what. Number two, because of that, it causes a lot of alerts. There's a lot of information because there is a lot of components that need to be working for it to work, which means it's information overload, both for the person on the monitor as well as the person who's supervising. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like this pilot project that you ran in New York City was not super successful. I mean, as a technologist and policy person, I would say it was really successful in that we learned a lot of important information. But yes, in terms of would we continue? Would I personally feel like electronic monitoring was a good way to continue? I would say no. That that was the main thing I learned. Despite these problems, electronic monitors are currently used by the federal government, all 50 states, and the District of Columbia. The thing that, to me, that's interesting about criminal justice technology um, is that the people who are using the technology 
both the people in the criminal justice system and, frankly, a lot of the supervising officers don't get a voice in the technology. So I think that the decision makers, who are, I think, well-intentioned people, are not getting the actual nuance, complexity, and difficulty for everybody of this technology. So I think it's being seen as a magic bullet. And when something is seen as a magic bullet, we use it all the time, right? After I spoke with Shuba, I had a question. How did we even get here? And who came up with this idea? I actually talked to one of the people who's been credited with inventing the use of electronic monitoring in the 1960s. He has some complicated feelings about how the tech is used today. That's after the break. So we um, went and bought missile tracking equipment. At the time, you could go to war surplus houses and uh, warehouses and simply buy equipment. And we figured, well, if you can track a missile out in space, you could certainly track a youth around Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's Bob Gable. He's a retired professor of psychology at Claremont Graduate University. What you just heard is the story that he tells of how he and his brother, Ralph, bought the equipment that they used to conduct what's widely viewed as the first electronic monitoring experiment. They did this work while studying at Harvard University, and their goal was to find out if you could stop young people from committing crimes through a number of interventions, including by monitoring their movements and giving them rewards for good behavior. I'm going to let Bob explain the ins and outs of their experiment, but I want to flag one thing first. For me, this conversation was a fascinating dissection of how psychology experiments were conducted in the 60s, and also a pretty heavy one. So get ready. Here's Bob Gable. Well, if they were in school, if they were in a drug treatment program, if they arrived promptly at work, whatever they were supposed to be doing, we wanted to give them an immediate reward of some sort. These young people are impulsive. You can't wait for a week or a month to give them some acknowledgement. So we gave them rewards like free pizzas or um, YMCA memberships or haircuts. The people that you recruited for this experiment, who were they and, and what were their initial impressions? Well, these were young adults. Um, And we would just go out to the street corners and we would see some youth or young adult who sort of just looked to us like somebody in trouble. (laughs) And we would go up to them and we would say, look, we're from the university and we're interested in what young people think about cops and parents and and we'll pay you $2 an hour and we then will hook you up to this apparatus and um, see if you like it as part of an experiment. Now, they would never think that we were telling them the truth and they suspected that we were drug dealers or homosexuals or some, some new kind of crazy person, they would say. Um, But we would just say, if you want to know more about it, let's just 
go to a nearby restaurant, we'll buy you some free food, and then you can come over to the lab and take a look at it, and there's no pressure. If you want to do it, that's fine. If you don't, that's okay. But the fact is that many of these young kids are standing around bored. They want something exciting to happen. And this was something different and new, so they would come along, and eventually they really got to like the project. So unlike the ankle monitor tech that's used today that uses GPS, Bob and his brother use monitors that would ping transmitters placed in a few locations in Cambridge. The person would go to a location and we would know where they were because they would pass one of the transmitters which we had placed at the school, at the work, at home, and those transmitters would then signal that the individual was at that location. And then we would verify it um, via these walkie-talkie kinds of things or by telephone. That was just one part of the study, which also involved getting the young men to talk about their lives and participate in activities like building electronic equipment. Bob told me the electronic monitors, which most people only wore for a few days, weren't necessary for this study. But he maintains that they were handy and had a small but significant impact on the results. We found that we could reduce the frequency and the, I would call, intensity of the crime, but of the crimes that they committed, but not really eliminate all crime or misbehavior. The work that Bob and his brother did on electronic monitoring was controversial from the start. In a 1969 New York Times article, a sociology professor at Northwestern University who commented on the study and talked about Bob's brother said, and I quote, We will not be surprised if in spite of his efforts, his idea in practice turns out to represent his worst fears rather than his highest hopes. People worried that the use of this technology would infringe on civil liberties. Bob disagreed, though. One of the things that that I felt was evidence that it was not an aversive or punitive system was that we lost, I think, only one of the transmitters that the youth carried. In general, they protected the equipment because it was something they wanted to be on. In other words, it was a a positive system for them. The way people now would protect their cell phones, um, you just don't want to lose it because that's how you're going to find out how many likes you got on Facebook today. So yes, it might look like Big Brother, but maybe Big Brother is a nice brother or a good sibling. So the tech didn't take off. It wasn't until the 80s that a judge in New Mexico named Jack Love actually implemented the idea. He helped develop an ankle monitor for people charged with minor offenses. The monitor would keep them at home rather than in an overcrowded jail. They were being used for house arrest, and there would be punishment if the person left the house when they were not supposed to. Bob says that this use of the tech was different than what he and his brother had intended. Our system did not have confinement. The young people were able to go wherever they wanted to go. There was not the positive component to this. There was only the negative 
punitive. If you do the wrong thing, then you get punished. And I understand the reason for that, I believe. And that's because probation and parole officers, if one of their clients does something wrong, then the public really gets angry at the agency and at the probation or parole officers. Um, and things will go wrong. There's no doubt about it. It's like similar to raising a child, I suppose. You don't expect the child not to make mistakes. Of course, mistakes will be made. But from the perspective of the criminal justice system, the idea is, okay, for 30, 60, or 90 days, just keep this person out of trouble. So it's a different mentality and an understandable one. So I've had decades of, sometimes I say decades of sorrow, but it should be just disappointment that there are so many young adults who have been continually punished instead of rehabilitated by positive means. Um, they are lives lost, and um, it doesn't need to be that way. It kind of sounds like you are a little bit upset about the way that these monitors are being used. Do you, do you feel responsible for that? Well, no inventor can control his or her invention. It goes out into the public and it gets used just as it seems most applicable to the people who adopt the technology. And in some ways, it's the best compromise. We really can't expect a rehabilitation system to be very effective uh, within the criminal justice system as it's now designed. I, I guess I'm still trying to figure out how you feel uh, about the idea of monitoring people. That that was the initial technology that you were, regardless of, of whether it was for positive or negative reinforcement, that that was the idea. If a person voluntarily says, I want to be monitored, or I don't mind being monitored, then I have no objection to it. Okay, so there's a consent issue here. It should be a knowing consent. I, I'm wondering, a lot of people who have worn the monitors or who are you know, advocates for, for criminal justice reform say that these monitors should be banned. Do you think the monitors should be banned and, and people should stop using them? No. I think they're the best compromise at the moment that we have. Um, I'm not satisfied with them. But again, it's a matter of trade-off. How many people do we keep out of jail or prison versus how much is the monitoring technology being expanded to people that shouldn't be monitored or, or surveilled at all? Well, I guess my question is, how do you tell the difference? That's a very good question, and I don't have an answer for that. My only answer is make something better. And the better thing is a persuasive technology, not a punitive one. Sarah Fahanna, who you heard at the top of this episode, is still being watched pretty closely. I'm under strict probation. I, I call... So I call every day to make sure to see if I need to go take a urine analysis. Then I have classes that I go to 
and I've actually completed. I go to meetings. I They even take a hair follicle drug test, which is like super unbeatable, you know, whatever. So I'm in compliance and I'm being monitored. What would you say to somebody who'd say, I mean, yeah, that, that doesn't sound like fun. That sounds hard. But also you're not in jail right now and you get to be with your kid. You get to be with your husband. Like you should be grateful. That's what, you know, and that's what uh, a lot of people actually do say that to me. Um, I Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, like my family and yeah, they do. And, and my answer to that is I was doing things before I figured out I was pregnant that I shouldn't have been doing. But I took the steps to, on my own, to go to rehab and to take the necessary steps to improve my life. And this ankle monitor doesn't help me do any of that while I'm trying to to turn it, you know, transition into the new person that I'm becoming. And the ankle monitor only adds guilt and shame, which is what I'm trying to eliminate. You know what I mean? So it's like, I'm not, I'm not grateful that they put it on me. In right. fact, I feel like if you really want me to go into society and get a job and become, a, you know, whatever, a productive member of society, having an ankle monitor on my ankle is not going to help at all. This is Reset. I'm Ariel Dimross. To read up about the topics we've covered in this episode, take a look at our show notes. We left a ton of links in there for you. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We publish three episodes a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. If you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us. Skylar Swenson, Martha Daniel, and Will Reed produce the show. Our engineer is Eric Gomez. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. The mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music. And this week, we owe a big, gigantic thanks once again to Art Chung for helping us out with this episode. Also, special thanks to the Texas Jail Project, Ava Kaufman of ProPublica, and James Kilgore of Media Justice. Reset is produced in association with Stitcher, and we're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back on Tuesday. Later, nerds.